Divine providence is at work in even the tiniest details of our lives. And yet, it's part of the divine design that its activity in the present moment is invisible to us. There's one loophole to this system which requires our conscious engagement. We can see the work of divine providence in retrospect if we want to. How is the Lord at work in your life guiding you forward on your path? It's up to you to recognize the signs. Here we are inside off the left eye. Stick around to try out bobbing for correspondences in the Bible with me and see how a simple verse in Jeremiah becomes a message about the good outcomes of our spiritual struggles. Next, Dr. Jonathan Rose, series editor for the New Century Edition translation of the theological works of Emanuel Swedenborg, begins to unpack the numerous mysteries surrounding Swedenborg's longest unpublished work, Apocalypse Explained. Then we travel to 1743, to the earliest date when Swedenborg says the Lord appeared to him this week in history. Welcome to Inside Off the Left Eye. This past week's topic, we explored, there is a science to your connection to heaven. That was the Swedenborg and Life show on Monday and which if you haven't seen it, you can watch it on our YouTube channel or, of course, listen to it as a podcast on the Swedenborg and Life podcast channel. And in the episode, we talk about how correspondences are at work in all creation, how it's really part of this core connection between the physical world and the spiritual world, and really that actually that connection was a conscious one and just apparent to people to the earliest uh, humans on on our planet, according to Swedenborg. And he writes of how there's still this potential to have that kind of a connection when we align with love and wisdom in our lives. And as we mentioned in the show, in the meantime, this sort of that uh, knowledge of correspondences is maintained in the word, in the Bible. And that's partly why one of the essential functions that the Bible serves is that it's this storehouse of correspondences, that the language, the wording that people used that was recorded and written down is still in that language of correspondences. And so the value of studying the Bible is that we can sort of get into that and and find, get sort of spiritual nutrition from that that can help us align with love and wisdom. And that's something that Jonathan touched on in the episode. And so what I had the thought to do was, do a little experiment along these lines, you know, drop into the Bible and see if we can't find some correspondences. And, and sort of as a little, uh, you know, if you're not used to reading the Bible or thinking about correspondences in terms of the Bible, this might give you just a little taste of what that might be like. Uh, Because I think that's what's fun is, is really anything, every verse in the Bible, according to Swedenborg, is full of this spiritual truth that that is connected at its core to divine love. And so how do we connect to that love wherever we're touching in in the Bible? And some some places are, you know, more easy, easily accessible than others. But so so let's try it. We'll have a little fun. And so I did this just before recording this episode. uh, But I did just pick up this uh, new revised standard version of the Bible that I have nearby and opened it randomly and What I happened to open to was this verse in Jeremiah chapter 40, and it's verse 10. 
where it says, As for me, I am staying at Mizpah to represent you before the Chaldeans who come to us. But as for you, gather wine and summer fruits and oil and store them in your vessels and live in the towns that you have taken over. And so I know that there's a, uh, you know, larger context going on in the book of Jeremiah, I'm sure. You know, I've spent some time in Jeremiah and I know that there's um, battles happening and, you know, things happening here and there. But even, even laying all of that aside, if we just apply correspondences just to this verse, I think there's something we can get out of it. So if we break it down, there's this, um, the gathering of wine and summer fruits and oil. And wine, uh, Swedenborg writes, is always, uh, has to do with truth, spiritual truth. And, and then oil is often paired with wine and the oil is, is a symbol of love, uh, divine love. And then summer fruits as a third element makes me think of that what comes of love and wisdom is useful action. You know, we've talked in this podcast about good, good as like what love and wisdom do is what we would call good. And so it's so interesting that this verse is telling us to gather those things and store them in our vessels. And vessels makes me immediately think of the parts of our spirit, or as Swedenborg would say, like our will and our understanding. And then this last line of live in the towns that you have taken over. And that makes me think of taking over parts of the Holy Land when the children of Israel are, are establishing themselves in the promised land. Um, that's really a picture of our process doing spiritual battle in ourselves over particular evils that we find within ourselves. And then, uh, through the process of repentance and reformation and regeneration, we gain some um, freedom. And so I think it's fascinating that we have the wine and the summer fruits and oil that we can store in our vessels and then live in those towns that we've taken over. And so sort of the takeaway, the overall takeaway for me that I just am putting together in my mind right now about this is that we can make use of those areas in our life where we've struggled and actually that that it's part of the Lord's design that when we struggle in certain areas, that can become useful to other people. You know, we gain, we've gathered oil and wine and summer fruits inside of ourselves in the places that we've struggled, and then we can offer them to other people and support others in their spiritual lives. So that that's sort of part of the design. So that was fun. I hope that that uh, helped you perhaps, or just gave you a little taste of like dropping into the Bible and seeing what we find when we apply this idea of correspondences. Looking forward, we are actually going to be having a break week this next week on the Off the Left I YouTube channel, but stick around because on Monday, November 9th, we've got another great show for you to kick off a new week of content. And this one builds on this subject of correspondences and is about how advanced technology originates in heaven. So that's what we're going to be exploring on the channel that week. And let's catch up now with Jonathan Rose and hear about what he's learning in his work for the New Century Edition for our weekly NCE Spotlight.
Okay, welcome to the NCE Spotlight segment of our episode. And I want to give a special thanks to a fan and viewer and good friend of the channel, Matthew Bush, for suggesting that name. Because I was saying, what should we call this segment? And he suggested, what about NCE Spotlight? And it just was like, yes, that's exactly right. So uh, here we are in the NCE Spotlight. Jonathan, it's great to have you here. I love that name. It's great to be here. Yes. <laughs> and so what are we exploring this week on the uh, virtual desk of the NCE? And what discoveries do you have for us? Well, there were certain details when I was researching this introduction to the Shorter Works of 7063, which came out in August. Mm -hmm. uh, I wanted to take on the task of reading all the manuscripts that were left in draft form all of mm. which have been translated into English, uh, luckily, and because uh, it would be a little bit slower in Latin and so on. But uh, read all those as kind of background reading, just to kind of get up to speed on what was going on. Yes. So I did something I'd actually never done before. Start at the beginning of Swedenborg's draft work that was never published, commonly called Apocalypse Explained or in the NCE, it's called Revelation Explained. Mm -hmm. And um, this is a work of exegesis. In other words, it's explaining the Bible, explaining the inner meaning of the Bible, but this time of the book of Revelation uh -huh. at the opposite end of the Bible from Genesis and Exodus that yeah. he treated of in Secrets of Heaven. And uh, as I was growing up, you always heard about this mystery about Apocalypse Explained. And the mystery was that in the book of Revelation, there are 22 chapters. There happen to be 403 verses. Mm -hmm. And Swedenborg got to chapter 19, hmm. partway through verse 10, <sighs> and then seemed to drop it like a hot potato. Oh, and so the mystery was, why did he stop doing that? And yes. uh, for so long, I just thought, that's the mystery of Apocalypse Explained. However, as I looked at it more closely uh, in reading for this introduction, I realized there are perhaps as many as nine mysteries <laughs> about <laughs> you know, th that's not the only mystery about this work. There's a lot of mystery around this work. Uh -huh. It's a very interesting work. And so I thought I'd talk about one today and just set this up. And maybe in subsequent weeks, we can get into some of the other mysteries. The if, mysteries, if we yes, of Apocalypse Explained. So inclined. Yeah. So uh, what is really helpful and wonderful about the survival of this manuscript is that it gives us an insight into things we would scarcely know if it didn't exist. And that's partly about how Swedenborg worked. Yeah. In other words, uh, he would write a rough draft. It was amazing, but paper was so expensive then that generally he would just write one draft. He might write some outline kind of material. Then he would copy that over in a careful handwriting that was called the fair copy, and he would send that to the printer to be published. Mm -hmm. So when the volume came out, he seems like he was a very unsentimental person. I've talked on this podcast before <laughs> about how he seemed to 
destroy any letters he sent to anybody else. He destroyed mm. any letters anybody else sent to him. <laughs> Some people, you know, when I was growing up, there were carbon copies. You know, you'd keep a copy of the yes. letter. Yes, copy of everything, like, yeah. Like copying, that's where copying comes from, and, you know, blind copy and all that in, in email. And um, so he usually destroyed that fair copy. Oh, but really? But in the case of Apocalypse Explained... It survives because the, fair the work copy survives. Okay, the yeah. fair copy survives because so in the case of seven out of eight of the volumes of Secrets of Heaven, we have rough drafts for seven of those volumes, and I surmise that that's because Swedenborg was living in Stockholm but publishing in London. And uh-huh. if the manuscript, if there's only one copy of the manuscript, and it goes down at sea or something, that would yes. be a tragedy. So he didn't destroy the first draft, but we don't have the fair copy of most of that material. I think there were mm. little little chunks that we've got. But in this case, we have an entire um, fair copy of the work up until the point at which it suddenly quits. Mm. So what's kind of fun to me is that you see in this fair copy that he has a title page, and on the title page, he draws a little ornament. It's pretty squiggly, but you can tell that it's roughly round and it sort of put the ornament here and he draws lines just where they would go. One of the things you never know with printing is did the author intend this or that feature of the book or did the printer just decide to do that? Mm -hmm. And what you find from this fair copy is that uh, Swedenborg exercised quite a bit of control over that publication process. In other words, he had opinions about what size font, whether it would be italic or Roman, hmm. uh, what goes on the title page, uh, put an ornament here. And so for the first six chapters of the 19 and a half chapters of Apocalypse Explained, in the fair copy, he writes instructions to the printer about what size font Hmm. to use, larger font for the biblical text, smaller for the main text. And he writes these all along as he goes in those first six chapters. And at the end of the sixth chapter, he writes at the bottom of the page, end of the first volume. Huh. So with a title page, with printer's instructions, it said London 1759. It really seemed like he was intending to publish this work. Yes. So one of the mysteries of the work is why he didn't just go ahead when he had Secrets of Heaven volumes ready to go. Yes. He didn't sit on them and wait till he had more volumes. He would publish them right away. Why didn't he publish that first volume of Apocalypse Explained? So that's kind of mysterious and may have something to do with what we were talking about last time with the Seven Years' War and the you know, th- danger that was going on and, and so on. Uh, so it might have been dangerous for him. He had gone back to, to Stockholm and, and maybe he didn't want to send it on a ship. It might, it might be lost at sea. So, uh, so it's pretty clear that at some point along there, he decided he was not going to publish it after all. Because, like, one sign of this is that from chapter seven and on, 
Yeah. There are no more printer's instructions. Yeah. And there's no more volume division, or he doesn't say end of volume two or, or anything like that. Huh. So it seems like he's decided to stop publishing. There's another strange little feature of this fair copy, which is that uh, these are the only manuscripts of his that look like this. But, of course, we, we've lost a lot of other fair copies, so maybe they look that way too. Yeah. But what, he, what it's got is at the top of every manuscript page, there's a little kind of elongated semicircle that kind of hangs down like a big U. Okay. And there's no writing in that spot. And the writing sort of goes around it. Hmm. And it appears on, if you had eight pages, it appears on the top of page one, page three, and page five. Hmm. But none of the other pages. Very weird. And he keeps that going up to chapter 11. Now, this all sounds very, very geeky, but, <laughs> but I'm interested <laughs> yeah. in his process. We're, we're in the know? weeds, but yeah, it's we very are interesting. way in the weeds today. <laughs> but uh, uh, those little circles at the top stop at the end of chapter 11. Hmm. So there's some things stop at the end of chapter 6, some stop at the end of chapter 11. Mm-hmm. There's another feature of the fair copy that stops at the end of chapter 11, which is that he left every eighth page of his original fair copy manuscript blank. He mm-hmm. hadn't done this before. Hmm. But he would write on seven pages and then leave the eighth page blank. Now, I have the theory that that has something to do with those semicircles at the top of the page. I think what he did was he just stuck his thumb there and then drew around it the way kids do for Thanksgiving or something. You know, you make the turkey. (laughs) Uh, And he would go because he had no page numbers yet. Oh, Uh, interesting. But if he goes, okay, one, zip, two, skip number two, three, do another one, skip number four, five, do it there, and then six, seven, eight. And then you know, oh, there's the eighth one. So when I'm writing... I'll know, don't write on that eighth page. And then here it starts again. So that way he could keep track of where he was with the writing of it before mm. he put page numbers in. I, I'm just guessing. But but the greatest mystery that, that to me that I wanted to talk about today is um, even though it's pretty clear that the plan was changing, and there's one more change I want to talk about, which is that in chapter 15... Mm-hmm. Verse 2, all of a sudden, he changes the way he's doing the whole thing. Hmm. Uh, up to this point, there's been a widely varying um, number of pages. I use the English uh, Green Redesign Standard Edition to, to uh, look at this uh, to try to sort of estimate how long these things are because I was interested in how much is he talking on average about each verse in a given chapter. Yes. And in chapter six, for some reason, he devotes 23.4 pages to each verse on average. It's a massive amount of writing. Yes. For each verse. When he hits chapter 15 and beyond... 
and that's the largest number. It, it's quite variable. Some are 13 pages, 15 pages per verse, and so on. But when you hit uh, chapter 15, it goes way down, way down into the single digits. Hmm. Uh, so that he's just got two, you know, three pages uh, per verse. And what he's writing instead, so the amount of actual explanation of the scripture diminishes at yes. the same time that he starts introducing a new type of material that he's never quite done in this way before, huh. which is that at the end of every section number, he'll have a totally different topic unrelated to what he's just been talking about. <laughs> in Secrets of Heaven, he did that at the beginnings and the ends of the chapters. Right, interchapter material. If you've seen that, he'll have yeah. spiritual uh-huh. experience stuff. But, but here, he's just got this parallel riff kind of going on that happens at uh, not every single number, but almost all of them. Hmm. And he just, it, it'll say continuation, and he keeps going. So you've got these two, it's kind of weird to read because you've got these kind of parallel universes going on in the text. Yeah. And the second universe is not entirely swallowing the first, but greatly reducing the amount of page real estate it has. Hmm. Uh, he, he seems uh, to be talking less about the exegesis and more about these other topics. And so, again, that doesn't seem like something you would do in a book that you were getting ready to publish. Yes. Would you drastically change your format three quarters of the way through, uh, uh, you know, a multi-volume yeah. series or something? It just seems. And he yet, doesn't... he continues to make the fair copy of all of this, right? That's the thing. You put your finger on it. Yeah. Okay. He's still <laughs> copying it out carefully, and Wild. it's quite clear because when he gets to the end, he gets to uh, up to number twelve thirty-two, if memory serves, section twelve thirty-two, in the rough draft, and then stops abruptly, and the fair copy makes it all the way to twelve twenty-nine, just you know huh. three three sections earlier which makes me think that still, even at that point, it was like a daily, you know, write your rough draft, copy it over, you know, write yes. this in the morning, copy it in the afternoon, or write in the afternoon and then copy it the, the next morning. Even, so even was, though at, at that point he's not, he doesn't seem intending to be printing this or in, at least as it is right now, because he stopped giving printer notes, he stopped, you know, Coloring ornaments and everything. <laughs> I would have to say even the penmanship has gone downhill. Uh, <laughs> he's he's crossing things out more. He's more kind of informal with the way that he's writing it, and yet he's still so. So the mystery is why that's so much work with a quill pen. I mean, this thing runs to thousands of pages. Each copy runs to thousands of pages. Yes, uh, you know the rough draft and the fair copy. Why do all that work? to to um, copy that over. And uh, I, I have a guess. I don't know. 
Uh-huh. But uh, would you like to hear it? Yeah, we shoot in the dark here. That's great. <laughs> great. All of our conjecture and wild, you know, heresies yes. and so on. That's right. So I think that he, by this point, is, you see, we have that rough draft, we have the fair copy, but when he's writing the rough draft and he starts doing that second parallel universe I was just talking yes, about. Yes, the parallel universe. <laughs> he just writes the word continuation in the rough draft and then writes a long squiggly line. Squiggle, 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 squiggle. So oh. the continuation sections are not present in the rough draft. Oh, my. So that means to me that there was another manuscript somewhere. So in other words, he was using yes. the rough draft to work out his exegesis, you know, the biblical explanation there. Yes. Then he must have had another stack of paper on his table where he had the rough draft of this material for the continuations. Hmm. The, the separate whole storyline that was going in there. And by the way, the topics of those continuations is very interesting. He does a riff on the Ten Commandments. He has material on divine providence, material on divine love and wisdom, hmm. which lo and behold, you know, we're talking about something that was written in 1759. Yes. He's about to publish on those topics in 1763. Yes. Uh, he's interested in the Athanasian Creed, uh, a Christian creed. Um, you know, he's sort of starting to swing in the direction of theology, it seems like. And uh, mm. so those that parallel line of material, I think, must be a separate pile on his desk. But we don't have that. Or that did not survive. Yeah. Uh, and so, really, the fair copy had switched from being uh, serving the function. I'm just making this up. But it had served, uh, arguably, f switched from serving the function of here's a nice, clean, legible copy for the printer to here's where I'm assembling this out of these different bodies of material for whatever use I want to make of it right. later. It totally looks like he's intending to publish this thing, and then it just completely changes beneath his fingers, you know, that it becomes this other this other thing that we don't know exactly what it is, but... That's right. Yeah. And years later, he, he uh, publishes um, Apocalypse Revealed, or in the New Century Edition called Revelation Unveiled, and he uses a lot of that earlier material, uh, but it also changes quite a bit, which is interesting mm -hmm. as it gets rewritten. And another little mini mystery is <laughs> he was so fond of, you know, destroying things that I wish he hadn't destroyed. Uh, <laughs> why didn't he destroy it after he'd used it in that work? He still kept it. Like there was some value yes. to that body of material that he could still, he, he wasn't ready to, to let go of it yet. Oh, that is so, so interesting. Well, this this has been amazing to explore these mysteries of Apocalypse Explained, and I do get the sense that there's so much more that we can explore. And uh, I my mind is on fire with thoughts right now, but it's been so great to talk to you about this, Jonathan. But at this point, shall we move onward now to see where Swedenborg was this week in history? Let's do it. 
right. So this week in history, we we are going to go this time to the year 1743. And the reason is because we're going to explore like the terrain of Swedenborg's spiritual awakening, which is definitely something we've touched on a number of times during in different episodes of this podcast. But this week in history in 1743 is the earliest date that we can pin down for when Swedenborg began his spiritual awakening. Um, And uh, do you want to say anything about that, Jonathan, at the outset? It's very exciting. I, I know there were phases to this thing, but there do seem to have been turning points, you know, a number of turning points that he points to. And uh, this sort of uh, fall 1743 was was definitely one. Yeah. And, and so something uh, about this time or the reason why it turns up is actually kind of a a reference back from this there's a number in his journal of dreams number 140 where he's writing during april um which april of 1744 so uh which actually is another sort of turning point time but he makes this mention in this number where he says uh Well, actually, I guess to set the stage a little bit more, the reason why it's kind of like there's no defining thing that says Swedenborg had a spiritual awakening in October of 1743. You know, like there's it's more that there's this constellation of material that kind of points back to this point. And here's here's one of those pieces of evidence that we have. So in this Journal of Dreams number 140, he says, uh, I was this day by turns in interior anxiety and sometimes in despair. Nevertheless, I was assured of the forgiveness of my sins. Thus at intervals, a heavy perspiration broke out upon me until 10 o'clock when with the help of God, I fell asleep, which we, so this is, this is his journal of dreams, which is like really just his own personal account of what's going on for him. So it's this amazing window into his uh, experience. And so he continues Then it seemed to me it was said that something will be given from within. I slept for an hour and a half, although in the night I had slept for more than 10 hours. By the grace of God, I have had preternatural sleep. That's what he's calling this experience that he's having. Preternatural sleep and this for an entire half year. So that's our little cue of, okay, six months ahead of April takes us back to sometime in October 1743, or sort of late October, as the onset of this preternatural sleep that he describes experiencing. And, Somewhere yeah. in there, that that's right. Yeah, so we don't have anything from him at that time, but we have this statement, as you say, six months later, saying for a full half year now, this has been going on. So, So somewhere back here around the end of October, early November, or something like that. Yeah, and so that that might seem like, well, it's just a dot in the dark, you know, a little (laughs) star floating out there. But when you connect it with this, another little piece of evidence where there's this letter that Swedenborg wrote to his uh, good friend, Thomas Hartley, and uh, where he writes 
to Thomas Hartley saying um, about the Lord appearing to Swedenborg. And in the letter, he says how the Lord himself most mercifully appeared before me, his servant, in the year 1743, when he opened my sight into the spiritual world and enabled me to converse with spirits and angels. And so he says, he pins the, the year 1743 and says the Lord appeared to him, but we don't, there's different, um, like what does, what does Swedenborg mean by the Lord appearing to him? Yeah, that's right. And we do have uh, manuscript records of an appearance in April of 1744. Right, that other time of year we were just reading about. Yes. That's right. He, it's right after Easter and he has this vision and, and uh, he writes a lot about it. And um, we also know of a turning point in mid-April 1745. Uh-huh. So another year later. Uh-huh. Uh, and interestingly, there's this phenomenon that Rudolf Leonard Toffel pointed out years ago, the, a Swedenborg scholar, that um, from about 1746 to 1752, I think it is, something like that, when Swedenborg says when his spiritual eyes were opened, he quite consistently says 1745. Yes. Even pointing to this mid-April 1745. Between then, I don't know if I got all the dates perfect here, but between then and uh, the 1767 or something like that, he consistently dates it to 1744. Yes. And even explicitly says a few times, 1744, that's the year that it all happened. When it all, this whole spiritual awakening happened for him. Yep. That's right. When did this start? 1744. Yes. Then, late in his life, he says not only in that letter that you just described to Hartley, but he yes. also writes to the Landgrave of Hesse-Darmstadt. Aha, uh-huh. he's featured in this of, podcast before. <laughs> that's right. Of all things, I don't think he expected to be covered in a podcast in yeah. the year 2020, but he, Swedenborg wrote to him as well, said the same thing about 1743. And then interestingly said, afterward, the Lord opened my spiritual sight and then gives a date from the time of writing that would put an interaction with spirit starting in 1744, but the Lord appeared to him in 1743. And yes. early followers of Swedenborg were interested in this. Nordenschuld was one. Yes. Uh, they thought, well, we don't know about anything in 1743. Well, and Isn't... by early early followers, like, so after Swedenborg's death in 1770, uh, blank, two, two thank right. you, I was going to say three, but 1772, it's it's after his death, but they, there, it's already people who are really interested in his work and studying it and really interested in what Swedenborg wrote and his experiences that he had. And they obviously can't go ask Swedenborg himself anymore. So they go, they write to another close acquaintance of Swedenborg's, Dr. Beyer, right? That's right. Okay. Who was a, a big fan who had actually lost his career, uh, sacrificed on the altar of you know, believing what Swedenborg said and everything. Yes. He was a subject of that trial in the Gothenburg consistory and um, and who wrote the first kind of concordance of Swedenborg's work, Byers hmm. Index. 
and he outlived Swedenborg by just seven years. But at some wow. time in those seven years, someone said to him, 1743, that's a typo, right? I mean, that's right. a, mis- a, 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 a slip of the pen. Yes. And uh, Beyer said, no, that's, that's, what he, that's what he told everybody. That's, that's the year. Yes. And so it's so interesting first that you have people who are, you know, people wanting to pin down a time. You know, like, when did this happen to Swedenborg that his spiritual eyes were opened, you know, and this this whole new spiritual awakening happened for him. And people who explore his work find these different dates and these different amazing experiences that he had, you know, where it's that 1744, I think you were saying, is when he really does document, like, a visual experience of seeing the Lord and being, um, is that the same one where he says it, he's gives a, gets a, good bill of health or something. That's right. Um, he's, he's sitting in his lap. And yeah, I mean, it's a very yeah. yeah intense, very emotional experience. And then, and then in Hartley, or in his letter to Hartley, the year before in 1743, he says the Lord appeared to him uh, and, op- and opened his sight to the spiritual world. But all we can tell is that that was just the time in his life when he was having this preternatural sleep, which we've talked about in this podcast where he's having um, amazing spiritual experiences in his dreams. You know, it hasn't uh, fully become the conscious, you know, interaction with spirits quite. But but so for him to be saying, oh, actually, even then in 1743, that was me having some sort of an experience with the Lord and and the beginning of this spiritual awakening. Um and you could think of that as being almost like saying supernatural sleep. I mean, that's kind of what that okay, Latin right. word "priter" term. Okay, yeah, means. Not, it's just sort yep. of beyond natural. Like this is not natural. It's kind of like saying surreal or, yes. or something like that. I love that he's just trying to put words around, like whatever is happening to me. Right, <laughs> it's not normal, yeah. and we need to call it something. And so he just kind of says, "Well, yeah, this has been going on for six months." Uh, yeah, but it's very interesting to me the idea that uh, uh, it's just conjectural. You can't connect the two. But the fact that he would say that there was this specific moment uh, or span of time, you know, that stretched back into end of October, early November of 1743, when yes. he started, his, his sleep was very like, I don't know what just happened, but that yes. was weird kind of a thing about right, the sleep. early The early rum, rumblings, actually, it suddenly gives me the thought of like early pregnancy where you don't. The first time you feel the baby move, it feels very weird. And it's like, am I really pregnant, you know, or was that just, you know, like, what am I feeling in my belly? But it's like, obviously, you know, oh, wait, no, there really is a baby developing. And it's like, so for Swedenborg, those like preternatural sleep or whatever in the early days is like little movements in the dark (laughs) where after the fact later on, he knows, oh, no, I know what that was. You know, now I know exactly what that was. Right. And I think that would explain, you know, I think the reason he assigns a date is because there were turning points and because people then generally just friends talking to him at at a soiree at somebody's house don't want to hear the 4,000 page version. Uh, (laughs) Just, you know, 
just give me a date. You know, <laughs> when, when did this start? So he'll give them one answer. But I, right. th- I wonder if the reason it recedes, as you say, is that he realized the older he got, the more he realized th- this was totally going on earlier. Yes. You know, as I look back on it, uh, there was a lot of uh, things happening to me that I now realize was this kind of thing. But he was pretty clear in that that statement to two different people he was writing to that the Lord appeared to him. You know, he, he said that yes. in 1743. So I'm inclined to take his word for it and say the Lord appeared to him. I think the Lord appeared to him multiple times and became very present to him through his study of Scripture. Yes. And so um, it's cool to think about as the, you know, imagine in Sweden— not the parts of Sweden are are above the Arctic Circle, and and so it gets pretty dark in the in the you know. So as the fall is coming on, uh, those nights are getting longer, yes. and something's happening in his spirit that he doesn't quite understand yet. But it starts to become a pretty consistent experience for him, and I wonder whether that was all kicked off with some thing that at the time maybe he just thought was a dream, but realized later, no, that was totally an appearing of the Lord and uh, yes. getting this whole thing going. Yes, I love that. And I love that it, it suggests like, almost, you know, more credibility to his whole experience, which, you know, this is something that we have explored in this podcast before, is that he, uh, you know, it the fact that it is sort of progressive and and has multiple moments, these like turning points that we've discussed. And ultimately, you know, the thing, uh, it almost covers several years. And uh, that that it isn't just, like that feels truer to just my experience with how growth feels for myself, you know? Like even if I'm not going through this same kind of spiritual awakening that Swedenborg is going through, you know, for his purpose. But, uh, you know, it feels like, Oh yeah, that that you know, when did when did you start to know that this was the path you were meant to take? You know, and you might the way our minds wake up to what's happening, then you know, Swedenborg even writes about how you can see providence better in retrospect. Like when you look back on how things are, you can see providence at work and and Good so point. and so that's like once he's all the way in it, he looks back and sees, "Oh, now I see that really was I maybe doubted it at the time, you know, wasn't sure what was going on, but now I can say with, you know, uh, confidence that that was the Lord appearing to me, and that was the beginning of this whole new trajectory. So, so um, many important things in life, I agree with you, have that quality of you don't necessarily recognize the the bad seems a little easier to recognize <laughs> right? at the time. In real time, <laughs> but the good often the good things that happen. It takes a couple of years before you realize, you know, I'm not troubled by that thought anymore that used to hound me a lot, or, or whatever it is. Um, yes, I do think it's very realistic. And if he was just making this up, which I, you know, can't believe, but yeah. if he was, <laughs> wouldn't you have it just be, oh, you know, this amazing light came in and told me what to do, and I went and did it. Yes. Uh, not this kind of years of kind of confusion and just wondering what's going on and wonder, and uh, that seems more like real life. 
Yes. So here we are this week in history in 1743, this time of year in late October, you've got Swedenborg on the beginning, the very first little uh, waves of this new experience that is coming down the line for him in his life. So that's really fun to explore that with you, Jonathan. Thanks so much for being here. Great fun, Chelsea. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Inside Off the Left Eye. Subscribe to Inside Off the Left Eye to be notified every time a new episode comes out. And you can explore all our content and resources at our website, offtheleftye.com. To become part of the core group of people who sustain what we do here at Off the Left Eye, go to otle.causevox.com to support our work with a donation. Every new donor gets entered into a monthly raffle to receive an Off the Left Eye gift. But you know, having you there listening is a real form of support in and of itself. So I mean it when I say thank you for listening. I'm Chelsea Odner, and we'll be here with you next week inside Off the Left Eye.